the January 6 hearings, gun control in Congress, and taxpayer funding of religious schools. I'm Cecily Fernandez, and this is The Square Circle. Welcome to The Square Circle. I'm your host, Cecily Fernandez. Joining us today are Libertarian and Florida Attorney, Addison Hosner. Addison, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Progressive Isaiah Poole of the Democracy Collaborative. Isaiah, wonderful to see you. My pleasure. And conservative and contributing editor for Newsweek, Peter Roth. Peter, great to have you on. Hello. Good to be here again. Welcome to everyone. This week saw two more installments of the January 6th committee hearings. Millions of Americans have watched the hearings, but whether they will have a lasting impact is still in question. Peter, what impact do you think these hearings are having? Uh, I think they're having more of an impact than the Republicans like, and I think they're having less of an impact than the Democrats hoped when Nancy Pelosi created this committee. I've noticed that President Biden's numbers have ticked up back over 40. And uh, the Republicans who were leading in the generic ballot test by as many as 12 points against the Democrats. And who do you want to have control of Congress after the next election? um, That it's now dropped to almost even. The only thing really that's changed uh, in the time that that's happened has been these hearings. And they are having the, the reportage on the hearings, not necessarily the hearings themselves, because I think the never Trumpers are watching them and the pro Trumpers are not watching them. And the independents are paying attention to the coverage um, that the coverage is reminding independents why they didn't like Trump and why they may have voted for Biden in the last election. Uh, so at the end of the day, I think. I I think probably a wash uh, because there is, as the president's behavior on January 6th, as it's now clear, was imperfect, so has this investigation been imperfect and partisan. And I think that the innate sense of fairness that most Americans have make them think that these are warp and woof of the same cloak. Isaiah, would you agree with Peter's assessment of uh, the impact of the hearings? Uh, No, I don't. Uh, Number one, uh, I think there is a very pronounced sense that the January, what happened on January 6th is is a, a sign that our democracy is in deep danger. And what many people who are watching, whether they're watching the hearings directly or they're watching the coverage of the hearings, are looking at the response of Republicans broadly, not just Trump, but Republicans broadly. And they're seeing a party that is not standing up for democracy, they are standing up for themselves. They're standing up for Trump. They're standing up 
for um, naked Republican uh, political power. Uh, they don't see the broader issue of a democracy that almost went down the tubes. Were it not for a few brave people in the Justice Department and, and in other places in government who stepped up and said, no, we are not going to go down uh, this uh, rabbit hole of believing that the election was stolen when in fact it wasn't. Addison, what do you think? What do you think about the impact of these hearings? You know, I think both, uh, both men make great points. I would agree in part with Peter. I, I do believe that for those who have supported Trump from the very beginning and continue to support him, these have no impact. And as does that on the right who are firmly entrenched in the uh, so-called MAGA camp of the right wing. And then, of course, those on the left who were never Trumpers and detest him, not only as a president, but as a man, it's not having any impact. They already knew what they knew and, and they had their assumptions built in. And to Peter's point, I do think the undecided voters, uh, people very much in a way like myself who are uh, not registered to either political party, but either a third party or are independent in general, are paying very close attention to this. At the end of the day in law, we like to, I like to make a saying, I know others do as well, that there's three sides to every story, uh, your side, their side, and the truth. And in this case, I think there are three sides. You have the side that's being put out by those on the left who predominantly are on the committee, which I will point out was not by design, but due to a lot of Republicans opting out and not wanting to be a part of this investigation. So crying wolf on that now, I think, is a little short-sighted. Um, and then you have those on the right who have their story. But what it comes down to is the facts and the evidence and the testimony and the depositions and what's being presented. And as an attorney, I care very deeply about the truth and getting to the truth through nonpartisan methods, through an objective observation of law and fact. In this case, the depositions we've witnessed from the footage, uh, the investigation turnups, whether the reports or the testimony from uh, just yesterday, uh, three Republicans, uh, the Secretary of State in Georgia, his deputy uh, secretary, as well as another gentleman out in Arizona, who all testified to what President Trump had asked them to do about potentially uh, causing votes to not be calculated or to decertify the election. These were very important testimonies. And so for me and to those who are looking at it from that angle, I think these, these hearings are having a very large impact, but I don't think it's having the impact to Peter's point that the left would like. And I don't think it's having the same impact uh, that the right would prefer. But for those of us who don't care about partisan politics, I think it's doing the job uh, exactly as intended. Peter, what do you think about that? And what do you think about um, what Addison mentioned about the um, maybe not so bipartisan nature of these hearings? Well, the, the, the hearings are, are bipartisan in, 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 in name only, really, because this isn't, this isn't about Democrats and Republicans. This is about people who don't like Trump investigating Trump. Um, when Speaker Pelosi created this committee, um, the Republican leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, appointed several, several Republicans to it. And Pelosi said, no, 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 they can't serve. They voted against decertifying the election results. They, and McCarthy said, you, you can't tell me who the Republicans are that I'm going to put on this committee. And she said, yes, I can. And he said, fine, I, then we're not playing. And she went and picked Cheney and Kensinger the two most anti-Trump Republicans in the House, certainly after January 6th. So this is this is this has all been about getting Trump, keeping Trump from running for president again. 
And I, there's a, there's a disconnect there because on the one hand, um, if Trump is so toxic, there's no way he could get elected again. And yet the Democrats are devoting all of this time and energy uh, into, uh, into, into trying to institute legal roadblocks to keep him from running again. Um, Trump is a sore loser. Everybody knows that Trump is a sore loser. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is not surprising. I hope, I believe that our democratic institutions are strong enough that the guy in the yak hat um, cannot, is not powerful enough to bring down the U.S. government. I don't think we came anywhere close to that happening on January 6th. The worst thing that could have happened is that the chaos on Capitol Hill could have forced them to evacuate the building and stop the counting of votes for a day or two. Not the worst thing in the world. Did you not see uh, the testimony that if the demonstrators in that building got 40 feet closer to Vice President Mike Pence, they would have been able to snatch him and carry him outside the Capitol to a noose that were waiting outside for them to hang him with. Okay, that was what was going on. We had an organized effort sparked by Donald Trump to subvert a, an election. That's called insurrection. That's called treason. That is criminal. If you were watching the hearings, you would see that there is, uh, there were criminal acts that were done that need to be punished. And so, I mean, this is not just, you know, a, a bunch of people getting out of hand. This is not somebody, this is, we're not talking about the guy who took the podium. We're talking about the people who were, had, who were uh, planning to assassinate the vice president and the speaker of the house. Why is that not serious? Addison, uh, how do you weigh in on this? Obviously people have very different, um, you know, uh, evaluations of how serious the threat was. I think the bigger you know, issue here is putting forth an investigation to find out if an exiting president was trying to purposefully prevent peaceful transfer of power, which is what we have had for every president in uh, our history. I could be correct on that if I'm wrong, but nothing like this has happened before. So my concern is just that the precedent of allowing something like this to happen without a hearing, without doing investigations and just going around, going about with our business and worrying about gas and forgetting about these things, that poses more of a threat to democracy than what I think any result of this hearing would have. We need to have checks and balances. We need to make sure those bad actors are thoroughly investigated. Unfortunately, we live in a society now that is increasingly partisan. This issue has been hyped up politically, just as was COVID and all the other issues that were a matter of public safety or public concern. That is a problem to me, but more so is not doing the right thing, which is at least going through with this. In the depositions we found, the uh, liability that's been exposed to John Eastman, Trump's former lawyer, who was the one who put the whole plan in motion with advising him that they could have Pence decertify the election. All that's very crucial information because if this is what's happening behind closed doors, the general American does not have that, that knowledge. And so I'd like to know what's going on. Um, overall, I think it's, it's a good exercise in how we handle these situations. It's a case of first impression. Could it have been handled better? 
Absolutely. I would have loved to have seen more involvement from the Republicans, less infighting between Pelosi and McCarthy. I would have loved to see them come together to figure something out. Instead, how we have it now, we're having these discussions where it seems to be a left versus right issue, where I view it as an American issue. And that's how it should be viewed moving forward, in my opinion. Okay. Well, also this week, a major gun control bill made headway in Congress. Here's a story from CBS News. The Senate has cleared a major hurdle in advancing bipartisan gun legislation. The bill still faces a floor vote in the Senate before it can head to the House, but has enough Republican support at the moment to pass. Fourteen Republicans, including Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, joined all Democrats in advancing the bill. The legislation would enhance background checks for gun buyers under 21. It would also help states implement so-called red flag laws and close what's known as the boyfriend loophole to prevent domestic violence abusers from buying a gun. The bill also includes funding for mental health and school safety resources. Isaiah, I'll start with you. Were you surprised to see this bill move to the floor for debate with support from uh, Republicans? I was somewhat pleasant, uh, pleasantly surprised, although really the, the heat that was placed on Congress by the situation in Evaldi, Texas, uh, was such that um, I don't think uh, Congress, uh, particularly the Republicans who have been resistant to doing anything, I mean, absolutely almost anything in terms of restricting the ability of even um, some of our more dangerous people to obtain a firearm. Um, yeah, I, I think the heat, the public heat was uh, pushed some of that back. And, and as a result of that, you know, we have something that makes incremental change. Uh, progressives are not totally happy with the result that we have. Uh, and I am sure that uh, just by the fact that only, um, uh, I think about 15 uh, Republicans, uh, actually I'm counting, uh, 79, 10, 11, 12, 14. 14, um, 14 Republicans uh, supported this in the Senate. Um, still a majority of the, of the Senate Republicans do not support this, but enough do uh, at least that we can make some small steps toward what I think most of the American people would see as very rational, reasonable accommodations. Uh, if you are uh, accused of domestic abuse, you shouldn't, there should be some, at least a speed bump in your ability to get a firearm. If you are between 18 and 21 years old, we need to take a closer look at you before you obtain a what is literally a weapon of war, like an AK-47. Um, we um, have a better definition of who uh, gets to count as a firearm dealer um, and uh, these kinds of things. Those are incremental steps that most of the American people support. Addison, uh, what do you think of this bill? Were you surprised to see it move fairly quickly to get to the floor? Uh, I'm surprised to see it at all, if I'm being frank, especially with you know the partisan divide with almost everything. The fact 14 Republicans came over to uh, 
you know, assist and lend their name to this bill. It still has to go to the floor for the vote. They only needed 10. The Democrats only need 10 Republicans to join them in this endeavor. They're at 14. And so that's that's a net win, I think. Um, as a libertarian, you know, I, I really don't agree with the infringement on people's constitutional rights. But I think the uh, the necessity for these type of, of gun control regulations don't infringe so much on your constitutional right. Is it something that we are having to adapt to thanks to these consistent tragedies that have continued to occur with little to nothing and little to no change. So what's being put forth in this bill, I don't think is anything astronomical. It's not restricting anyone's ability to actually purchase a firearm. And really the only demographic that's being targeted here is those 18 to 21 for the you know, increased background checks, uh, as uh, Isaiah was talking about, domestic violence abusers, which you know, as a family law attorney, I do a lot of that. I can say that's an excellent step. We see too many threats with firearms as is in civil court. Um, but there's some other things that I, I can see issue with, the increasing of red flag laws. That gives me a little bit of a 1984 step back where government's allowed to monitor people and then issue warrants to go and seize their firearms. I'd like to know a little bit more about the safeguards in place to make sure that's not abused. But overall, it's better than nothing. We're moving in a direction where at least we're moving with a little more common sense. And at the end of the day, as long as the Second Amendment is still protected and we're taking safeguards to try to prevent uh, Uvalde shootings, uh, that to me is a step in the right direction. And I'm, I'm glad the Senate, in a time of uh, partisan politics, is moving forward with something, and I think a very logical and common sense way. Peter, what about you? Do you see this as a positive step forward? I have some grave concerns about the implications of some of the proposed changes in the Senate bill. Um, the, 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 for example, the potential, no pun intended, weaponization of the red flag laws. Uh, and the domestic abuse issues that, that now make it a threat that can be wielded in a contentious um, family court disagreement. The Supreme Court has held that the right to own firearms is an individual right. It is not a group right. Um, I don't think ultimately that this bill gets to President Biden's desk because whatever the House passes, I think will be different, then you will have to bring the House and Senate together, produce a conference committee that will produce a single bill that they can both pass. And I don't think that you can reach agreement between the House and Senate on what this ought to be. Uh, we'll move on to um, another big topic this week, the Supreme Court issued a decision in a high-profile First Amendment case. Here's the coverage from the PBS NewsHour. The case involves Olivia Carson of Glenburn, Maine, a town so small that, like half the state's school districts, it doesn't have a high school. Under Maine law, those students may get taxpayer money to help pay tuition at private schools as long as they're non-sectarian. Because of that restriction, the state would not pay for Olivia to go to Bangor Christian School, which her parents had chosen for her. Today, a 6-3 majority of the court said that violates the First Amendment's guarantee of free exercise of religion. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the majority. Uh, he said in part of his opinion, a state need not subsidize private education, we concluded. He was referring to a previous case. But once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. And then he turns to the main case. 
The state pays tuition for certain students at private schools so long as the schools are not religious. That is discrimination against religion. Addison, I'll start with you. Um, what do you think the impact of this ruling is going to be, especially for uh, obviously religious schools? Well, I have uh, some concerns here. This was actually something I remember bringing up to my constitutional law professor back in law school, finding this particular issue of, you know, at what point is the First Amendment free exercise clause and the, uh, the establishment clause going to butt up against one another? Who's going to get the precedent there? Who's going to be able to assert my religious freedom over uh, the establishment by the government? And in this case, it seems to be apparent the Supreme Court is choosing that your First Amendment uh, right to practice your religion should not be infringed upon by the establishment clause. But I find that to be somewhat concerning. Now, the issue that came to the court with this about uh, Maine, a tiny town in Maine that did not have any other school, and it was only this private school which happened to be a religious institution, that I think is a very particular and niche case, and that it, this should have been handled maybe through the wave, uh, uh, the, the way of granting waivers in situations like this, where it's putting a blanket statement that government taxpayer money can now go towards tuition of religious schools. I went to a private Jesuit Catholic law school, I went to Creighton University, that was a religious institution. But when I was there, I was studying law. I was not practicing religion in any way, shape, or form, and I am not Catholic. Education and religion are mutually exclusive. They are not one and the same. So this case's decision is resting on the fact that by not allowing someone to attend a religious private school, you are inhibiting their right to freedom of religion and practicing it. I don't see it that way. I, I see this as an, an establishment of religion and allowing that to become the baseline for precedent in the future how far this goes, what else can this be used for to make an argument? That gives me pause, gives me great concern, but there's a 6-3 majority on the court right now that leans heavily conservative. Five of the six yes votes were Catholics. And so when you have that set up on the Supreme Court and you see a ruling like this, where is this going to go? Where is this going to head? And we're already seeing it with the leaked opinion with uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned. I think there's a lot of religious undertones, a lot of moral uh, judicial activism from the court. And that gives me great pause. And so a case like this, while I am not against the idea of someone who does not have any other option, getting a waiver to attend a private religious school, it should not be a blanket statement that allows anyone in this type of situation across the country, where there are multiple options, they now get to say, you know what, I want to go to the Catholic school because I grew up Catholic, and I want to give my money to them. This is essentially taking taxpayer money and putting it right into uh, religious organizations and at that point, uh, the whole tax-free status of churches, I think, comes into question. But that's a whole other argument. Peter, uh, how do you weigh in on, on this ruling uh, from the Supreme Court? Uh, I think it's a tremendous civil rights victory. Uh, it's a victory for parents. It's a victory for children who are stuck in failing schools. Um, more than 150 years ago, the Republican Party in its... Uh, nativism and bigotry, passed state constitutional amendments to prevent the funding of religious schools um, by the state. Um, it, it, it is a blight on our record as a free people. I am glad that the Supreme Court in this latest decision continues to put the pendulum back where it belongs. And if we are going to fund the government schools, then we have to fund or make it possible um, if the voters choose to fund private, 
parochial schools, perhaps even provide um, subsistence for people who choose to homeschool because everybody's paying for the government schools. They're paying for them through their property taxes. And it, it provides an onerous burden on families to then have to come up additionally with the tuition money for the private parochial schools or to, for the time and expense and materials for homeschool. Uh, I'm also hopeful that as we move forward with this, that this will help transition the funding for education to students from schools. We shouldn't be funding buildings. We should be funding children so that they have an opportunity to receive the education that they need to pursue their piece of the American dream. And so when we, we allocate funds on a per capita basis, but that's just an accounting gimmick. It goes to the building. It doesn't go to the student. It ought to go to the student. And if the parents of the student choose to go to a private school, to go to a religious school, to go to an expressly atheist school, I'm fine with that. And the money should follow the student. Okay. Um, Isaiah, what do you think about this ruling and, and, and specifically about um, uh, what Peter has to say about funding um, the student and, and students having the ability to um, choose uh, the school they want to attend? Well, first of all, it's a civil rights, it's a massive civil rights defeat, not a civil rights victory. Uh, because what the, the ruling allows is for the, cre uh, for the public funding of schools that are anti-gay, uh, schools that are anti-Black. I mean, we have a history of uh, basically segregation academies, schools that were explicitly created so that white parents did not have to have their children in schools that were integrated. And uh, these were private schools created by religious organizations. Now those kinds of schools can get public funding. Um, schools that, that uh, tell children that they should hate people because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Now those institutions get public money. That undermines everything that we have been, uh, we're fighting for and everything that we say that we believe in. Um, education, the whole point of funding public education, or much of the point of funding public edu education, is not only so that children can be the best of who they are, but so that we have a common base of knowledge and mutual understanding as a country, so that we can understand our differences and come together uh, even with our differences and live together as one country. If you say to people that, uh, you know, you can use government money to subvert that, I don't think that's, uh, that is going to harm us in ways that I don't think we fully appreciate. Uh, we've been talking all throughout the program about uh, the Balkanization of our politics, politics and our, of our culture. I think this takes us down to a road, uh, down a road where that is much, uh, makes that much worse.
Okay, well, we're going to leave it there for now because we have do have some questions from our viewers. So I want to make sure to get to those. Um, Bill Robbins asks, has the January 6th committee presented any information that is not true? Um, Addison, can I start with you on that one? Uh, as of right now, everything I have seen has been mainly testimonial questions that have been presented to individuals who are under oath answering uh, deposition transcripts and, and video footage, uh, legitimate media footage that was taken directly from the event. So I haven't seen anything that could be considered fabricated. I know that has been a big uh, talking point. Is this all fabricated? Is this being turned in a way to, to lend itself to an argument? And I say, well, absolutely, to an extent, part of the reason of presenting evidence to support your case is to present it in the light most certain to assist your argument. That is what we do in a court of law. So I have no doubt that that's what the Congressional Committee is likely trying to do as well by putting their evidence forth. It's up to the, the overall viewer at this point to determine what is and is not truthful. If by truthful, the questioner means accurate, um, I think we're probably okay. If, if by untruthful, he means in the kind of the way that the tinfoil hat crowd insists that the moon landings were faked. I don't believe any of that's gonna. The, the issue is not so much the interpretation, the, the evidence, the depositions, the footage that's been presented. It's who's been picked to testify, the stories they've told, um, how they relate to what actually happened and the interpretations that are being put on all of that information by the people who are filtering it out for those who are not watching themselves. Isaiah? Well, I mean, I think Addison was was perfectly right. I mean, people are people are testifying under oath. They're speaking uh, under under uh, penalty of of, of of perjury to to what they to the best. Uh, their best recollection of what they saw and what they uh, what they experienced. Okay, our uh, next viewer question: Ramona Holt asks, "Why is a semi-automatic rifle the weapon of choice for mass shooters?" Can I start with you on that one, Peter? I'm I'm not sure. I know since I <laughs> don't think that I think like a mass shooter. Uh, but I have taken gun safety classes in pursuit of concealed carry permits, and the AR-15 is an easy-to-operate, um, high-volume, semi-automatic weapon that is often recommended for women who live alone and for elderly people who may not be able to handle something with significant throwback to it. Um, it's used by hunters. It is a popular weapon. It is an effective weapon. Um, I, I assume that's probably why it is the choice of people who choose to do bad things with it, just as it choose to do good things with it. But, you know, we, we, we Ramona asks a good question, but Ramona might want to ask also why most of the mass shootings occur in gun-free zones. Isaiah? Follow the money. Uh, look at the advertising. Uh, AR-15s and other similar weapons are very effectively marketed, particularly to men, uh, sometimes to women. Uh, but there is a macho culture that's elevated, that 
that helps popularize these weapons. And um, so, you know, it's, it's, um, it's capitalist marketing uh, that, that plays a significant role in why, um, why we see these guns uh, out there. Okay, Addison, do you think that uh, it's, it's largely due to uh, marketing? Uh, my own theory is that it's uh, slightly easier to acquire. When I was studying law in Nebraska, I'm originally from Florida. I came back to Florida. I was always a resident here. Uh, when I was in Nebraska, I looked into purchasing a firearm for personal protection because my university was in a kind of a dangerous area and uh, you know, robbings with weapons were, were common. So I thought I'd maybe look into getting a weapon, taking a safety training class. And when I went to a local, it was a Bass Pro shop or one of those you know, outdoorsy shops that has guns, I asked if I could buy a pistol and I was told I could not because I was not a Nebraska resident. However, I could buy a shotgun or a rifle and have it to me in just a few days. And I found that to be very concerning uh, just because the weapon potential of a shotgun or a rifle is way stronger than that of a pistol. But as far as why you would use a rifle and not a pistol, I mean, I'm not a, a mass shooter or killer and I don't own a weapon myself, but I think the pistol would be easier to conceal. But I think it's because of the fact you cannot acquire a pistol without going through certain hoops. Um, but again, it's all speculation on why mass shooters use the weapons they do. It might just be from the magazine chamber being larger. Um, but it's one of those things I'd rather not... Uh, really speculate too much on because I don't want to give anyone any ideas. Okay. Uh, well, it is now time for the most underreported story of the week. So I'm, I'm wondering, is anybody dying to go first with their underreported story of the week? Or, or do I get to call on somebody like a classroom? I'll be happy to jump oh, okay, into the pool with Peter. both feet. <laughs> My underreported story of the week is Andrew Gilliam, the former mayor of Tallahassee, Florida, who came within about 30,000 votes of being governor of Florida as opposed to Ron DeSantis. Uh, Gilliam was the next Barack Obama. He was the rock star. He was the superstar. Um, there were a lot of people in my business who put their thumb on the scale of their coverage to promote Gilliam, both because they liked him and because they didn't like Ron DeSantis, the Trump choice to be governor of Florida. Well, this week, former Mayor Gilliam was credibly charged in a 24 count indictment of misdeeds that he engaged in while mayor of Tallahassee. Into the memory hole goes Mr. Gilliam and his indictment. If this had been a losing Republican candidate for governor of the third largest state in the country, it would have been headlines. But because it's a Democrat, it's memory hold. Who else has a, an interesting underreported story? Addison? Uh, the Texas GOP has put forth a referendum that within it wants to put forth a vote in 2023 for the people of Texas to decide if they would like to secede from the United States. A lot of this stems from the fact that they still are uh, of the belief that the election was fraudulent and that Joe Biden is not the duly elected president. It has no chance of passing. In fact, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia had once made a statement about secession being completely off the table and should not even be in discussions. But again, I think it's relevant, especially with the hearings going on when we're talking about seditious behavior. Here you have the GOP platform in Texas putting forth a referendum that includes uh, the potential to secede. I, I find it odd uh, that it, that's even happening. Um, additionally, at the very end of this referendum, it calls for a complete repeal of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So the whole thing together to me is an odd play. Um, I don't know what the Texas GOP is up to, but um, that is my most underreported uh, story of the week. 
Okay. Isaiah, bring us home with your most underreported story of the week. Well, I'm going to go to Georgia. And Stacey Abrams has been, who is um, um, uh, making a candidate, uh, has a candidacy to be governor of Georgia this fall, uh, has also been making some nominations, uh, some endorsements rather, in uh, some races there in, uh, in the state. And while progressives have in this uh, election cycle so far have had a bit of a mixed record, Stacey Abrams has actually been done, uh, has done pretty well. Uh, her pick for Secretary of State uh, in the Democratic primary won. Uh, her pick uh, for Lieutenant Governor won. Uh, Labor Commissioner also won. And she also made some picks in some other uh, state level races uh, where she did very well. So at least in the Democratic uh, uh, Party in Georgia, uh, she's picking winners. Uh, people are paying attention to uh, who she thinks should be elevated. And so we'll see how far that takes her and the Democrats in the state of Georgia. Okay, we'll be watching. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Square Circle. Thanks to our wonderful guests and thanks to all of you for watching or listening to the Square Circle. I'm Cecily Fernandez. Please subscribe to our channel and like this video or give it a five-star rating on your podcast platform. See you next week.